Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. Hey, I'm glad you're with us. And we've got a really interesting show on two basic fronts we're going to start with. I've got Laura Jones. She's executive director of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. It's one of these things that we're not measuring often enough, or we're not appreciating the cost of it. And I'm talking regulation. It's red tape week. And I think it's going to blow you away. I mean, Ozzy and I talk about this on the real estate market on a regular basis. How much government red tape regulations add to the cost? Well, it goes throughout the economy. I'll chat with, with her about it. Plus, looking forward to this. Chris Sims is with me. Looking over the public sector wage demands right now, and I'll tell you, it's my shocking stat of the week. It's just mind-blowing at some point. Uh, also, of course, I've got Victor with me. I've got Ozzy with, with me, and I've got Michael uh, Levy. We're going to talk a little bit about the interest rate changes going on and Federal Reserve talked again. I mean, my goodness, that's how the world revolves, and we'll talk about it. Plus, as I said, Victor will join me. We'll talk about our takeaways from the World Outlook Conference. But first... You know, a recent Leger poll found 67% of the public agree with this statement. It feels like everything is broken in this country right now. Well, maybe not a newsflash. I mean, it's pretty obvious there are some very deep divisions in Canada. But what does the country is broken mean? I mean, when people say the country, I suspect they really mean government, especially at the federal level, given the Leger poll broadly mirrors the voter breakdown in the 2021 election. I mean, the Prime Minister and the Liberal Party got 33% of the votes, 67% went elsewhere. Well, now, 67% feel the country's broken. But I think the word feeling is the key. It suggests that differences over policy run deeper, arguably deeper than they ever have in Canada. I mean, history shows us that the policy differences between the left and the right, historically again, have been far less dramatic than portrayed by the politicians themselves. But the current policy differences, see, I think, are more profound. For some people, for example, climate change is the number one issue. It's paramount, even at the expense of economic prosperity and financial stability. For others, and I suspect probably in the energy industry for sure, who are threatened with job losses, it's the reverse. They think you need a solid economy, and then you can worry about other issues like climate change. But since the outset of the pandemic, the divisions between those and that value individual freedom, including free speech, for example, and those that prioritize state enforced security, well, they've intensified. Now, I know, look, hey, all of us can add on other significant divisions that resonate with people emotionally. But the poll results also come at a time of extreme financial stress for many people. And I think that's playing a part. Maybe the poll is a reflection of the fact that many Canadians feel the government is disconnected from their concerns. For example, according to the Leger poll, 68% of Canadians think the cost of living is their top concern. Only 28%, though, believe it's a priority for the government. Or does the fact that 12,000 people died waiting for medical treatment in 2020-21 in a public health care system notorious for its wait list suggest Canada's broken? I mean, I still can't get over this. We have politicians, most of them, at least none of them brave enough to stand up, but most of them work to prevent the estimated million of people, million right now, who are stuck on wait lists for medically unacceptable times, which according to both the Supreme Court of BC and Canada causes needless suffering. We have politicians preventing them for, see, for using a private system when the public systems failed them. I mean, not a surprise that some of them are going to think the system's broken. Same with those who can't find a family doctor. Yet, according to the Leger poll, only 28% feel the government's focused on the problem. And the delays at the passport office, oh my gosh, or the World Bank rating of the Port of Vancouver, 368 out of 370, 
you know, come on, that's so far down the efficiency scale, I'm not sure what they call it, but that may be a sign if something's broken. I mean, clearly not everyone cares about government efficiency and waste. I get that. But the parliamentary budget officer does, you know, although I suspect this, if you waited six months for a passport, you stood in line an uber long time at a security lineup at the airport, maybe you care about this a little bit more than you used to. But the testimony this week by Il Giroux, he's the head of the parliamentary budget office to the Senate National Finance Committee, I'll tell you, isn't going to alleviate any of that feeling. For example, when asked about the performance of the passport office, Mr. Giroux stated in quotes, there is a system that's broken. I mean, the government will invest and spend many millions to do this and that. Okay, but what are the results? I'd be curious to see the next departmental results report with Passport Canada. Will claim? Will they claim a big achievement? I wouldn't be surprised if they claim some sort of success, despite the disaster we've seen in the last couple of months, end of quote. But I think this, more, uh, Mr. Giroux's observation that the cabinet ministers, in quotes, are not very well equipped to manage their department is far more troubling. Instead, the public servants involved, they set the targets, which he adds are never too high, then they're the ones to evaluate those results. Obviously not ideal. Yet, <laughs> Mr. Giroux states, yet by their own assessment, they failed to deliver on many of these. So there is a system that's broken. And, you know, remember former Auditor General Micah Ferguson stated, the system seems set up for civil servants to avoid responsibility. I mean, come on, successive Auditor Generals, every single one have found that too often programs lack goals, measures, accountability. I mean, it's been with us for decades. Hundreds of billions of dollars have been lost. I mean, but here's the thing now. Increasingly, we're living the consequences. Whether we're talking medical wait lists, lack of family doctors, passport, flight delays, literally tens of billions of our tax dollars unaccounted for, not just wasted. They don't know where the money is. Come on. I think more and more of us experiencing that feel the system's broken. I mean, finally, there's the political approach too, which contributes to marginalizing Canadians who don't support the government agenda and narrative. As Joel Lightbound, now he's a liberal for goodness sakes, liberal MP in Quebec City states, from a positive and unifying approach, a decision was made to wedge, to divide, and to stigmatize. Well, you know what? That approach in this environment has consequences that go far beyond politics and reverberate into the very fabric of the country, erodes confidence in government, and leads to nowhere good. That seems to be what 67% of Canadians are saying. Hey, just a reminder, by the way, if you didn't make the World Outlook Conference, hey, not too late. And I think you see the general reviews, or not just general, virtually every single one of the people who attended thought it was fabulous. Why? Because we had top-notch analysts giving you ideas about where to save money, where to protect yourself, how to make money. All of it's there. My goodness, I was thinking uh, about the uranium move this past week. Well, Tony Greer was standing up there saying, Uranium looks real good. I know we've been saying it. It coincides with our opinion over the last couple of years. But that's what the conference was all about. We had stock recommendations, commodity recommendations, and as I say, and real estate from Aussie. And as I say, hey, look out areas of the market. Well, it pays for itself many times over if you just get one of our stocks on the World Outlook small cap portfolio, thanks to Ryan and Aaron at Keystone Financial. So Anyways, I invite you to give it a, a, a check out. Watch it this weekend. All you have to do is just go to worldoutlookconference.com and you can be streaming immediately this weekend, as the old ad used to go, in your underwear in the living room. But as I say, a fabulous time we had. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to chat with Victor about what his main takeaways are. So, so much more coming on the show. 
Time now for the shocking stat of the week. And you know what? This is only the second time I've done it. I bring in, I bring in some top-priced help to do it. Both times, it's the Taxpayers.com, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and Chris Sims, who's the director of the Alberta branch of the Canadian Taxpayers. And why? Because they do terrific work. I mean, they're doing work that... Uh, you know, you just don't find anywhere else. And it's all on behalf of the taxpayer. Just like anything I do in this program, you can decide if you like your taxes going that way or not or whatever. But I think you need the information. And I'll tell you, taxpayers.com gives you that. Chris, first of all, appreciate you spending time with us. Uh, thanks so much for having us. We appreciate it. Well, so let's start with this. This is the shocking stat. You know, of course, we know we have inflation. We see, you know, sort of an average 5% wage gain over the last year and a bit, but that's not what's happening in the public sector. I was actually blown away by some of the work you did, uh, you know, and the others in the Canadian Taxpayers Federation on how much we've got our public sectors asking for it right now. And of course, it's going to cost the taxpayer. Yes, it will. And it is an up to 47% increase in pay that PSAC, <laughs> the Public Service Alliance of Canada, is asking for. And you, you heard that right. We didn't stutter. Yeah. 47%. And and again, people have to make, and again, you know, I'm sure if you're in PSAC, you think that's just about right, but maybe some others don't, you know, especially the taxpayers, because this is where, you know, inflation doesn't actually go away because, you know, you start with some goods and services, et cetera. And we've gone into on this show, some of the reasons for it, but then the wages start catching up. Well, when you get sort of, obviously not everyone's asking for 47% increase, but but really you're seeing significant ask on the part of the public sector. And, uh, you know, that's why our cost of living continues to go up. Yes, for sure. So our federal director, Franco Terrazano, uh, who used to be the Alberta director, his mom just lives around the corner from me here in Alberta in Lethbridge. Uh, he did an amazing amount of work on this. And he and I talk every day. And we actually had to go back and forth on the phone a million times because we kept saying these numbers have got to be wrong. <laughs> they have mm -hmm. to be wrong, but they're not wrong. Uh, PSAC is asking for up to 47 percent increase uh, in normal people talk. That would cost taxpayers about nine point three billion dollars. So PSAC, for folks who haven't worked in Ottawa, the land of Oz, uh, that is an umbrella group of a whole bunch of government employee unions. And it is this is coming from the Treasury Board, Mike, that are telling mm -hmm. us this. So this is not something that we've uncovered. This is something the Treasury Board itself, the federal government itself, is telling us that they, this is how much they're looking for. And if you take a look at the number breakdowns, there's the EB, the Education and Library Science Group. That's one union. They're asking for 8% per year for three years. The PA, Program and Administrative Services, 9% per year over three years. This one was crazy. Operational Services Group, 14% per year over three years. So compounded, that's a 47% increase. Like these numbers are mind blowing, especially when you compare it to the rest of us. We've had the tale of two pandemics the past three years. Those of us in the private sector losing our businesses, uh, seeing job cuts and wage cuts. But in the government sector, uh, they've been getting bonuses and pay hikes. It's also uh, in sharp contrast to what we've seen in the private sector in terms of uh, technology enhancing productivity. So, uh, you know, I've, I've done some charts recently where they showed how, you know, companies are basically doing a heck of a lot more with less. Mm -hmm. Well, it's absolutely the opposite. You want a good bull market? Well, look at government employ employment. We're, I mean, this is just part of it. But the other side, of course, that you guys have been looking at too, which is the huge growth in consultants, you know, that don't 
report like these these uh, unions do not report to the treasury board it's just a bill that gets presented no one knows quite what we're getting for it although i do know specifically that some uh consulting firms are hired to look at the work of other consulting firms to see if anything happened uh but people have to get that so it just compounds i mean the growth in the government as i say it's a big bull market but chris back to what you're saying the other part that's so important is when you hear there's an eight percent wage increase request but it's compounding. That's really a key. Compounding usually over these three years or a 9%, as you say, program and administrative services. Or yes, I'm still sitting down 14% for three years, Mm -hmm. each year for three years. Again, that's what I just want to make sure. But as you said earlier, this just translates to more money and all of it's borrowed. I mean, it's not like the government's flush with cash. No, every nickel of this is borrowed. We have unmoney right now. We are more than a trillion dollars in debt. So we have negative money. We have to pay interest, which is going up, by the way, thanks to these deficits and inflation and printing money. And we don't have the cash. But turn around, these government unions don't even blink. They're saying, yeah, well, pay up. 47% increase. We have to point out also that just last year, they handed out about $171 million just in bonuses. And this is to the federal government employees who achieved less than 50% of their objectives. So that means they're failing at their jobs, but they're still getting big bonuses. Well, and also, I don't want to confuse the matter, but it's so it's so pertinent. And that is people have to understand that. And I've always been driven nuts by this over, you know, 40 years of broadcasting. Yeah, then we, when we just forget to add on whatever benefit increases are there, too, because, of course, if I'm getting percentage pay on my, uh, you know, a vacation pay, for example, or I could ask for direct increases in vacation. This is uh, it's a very there's layer upon layer that costs the taxpayer. Cause I know that you were saying in one of your reports, the taxpayers.com taxpayer.com that the treasury board says, Hey, there's other things here, like increased paid leave for family related responsibilities, you know? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And that's on top of four weeks paid vacation after four mm-hmm. years. I don't know about you, <laughs> but I, when I yeah. was 22 and uh, in my you know first four years of official employment, I was working when I was 12 too, but you know, officially on the books at, at 22 years old, I sure as heck wasn't getting four weeks paid vacation and they want extra paid family time on top of that. And get this, they're actually calling for automatic double time whenever they have to work overtime. So for the rest of us mere mortals who do get overtime, um, it's apparently time and a half. I wouldn't know. Uh, but no, they want yeah. double time. And and they want meal allowances, even if they work from home. So if you have to get up off the couch and trundle over to the refrigerator and make yourself a sandwich, they want taxpayers to pay for that too? Like, these demands are crazy. Well, it's... The other thing, I'm just, as I'm listening to you there, I mean, that last one is absurd. You're working at home as if you don't have to eat, and now I'm going to get reimbursed for going to my own fridge. I mean, really, it's just, it's too much. It, in my opinion, at least, it's too much. It is. And I bet in the opinion of some of these workers, this is the union uh, union leadership that's calling for this. I bet if I grabbed a couple, because I know lots of uh, people who work in uh, public sector unions, they do a good job, et cetera, and they think some of these requests are ridiculous, you know, yeah. and, and other things that their leadership does they don't agree with like uh you know the support of 
Venezuela, for example. Sorry, I, I, I can't go down that road, but no, you no, get what I'm saying. They're so, forced to pay union dues. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we hear you. And then keep in mind also that these are the same union bosses that didn't lift a finger during the Phoenix pay problem. So there were thousands. I worked in talk radio in Ottawa. I heard from the bureaucrats all the time. There were thousands of people who were either not being paid at all or were being paid way too much. And they were panicking because they had to save every single cent of it in order to pay back. These union bosses couldn't be bothered to open their mouths for more than a year and a half with their, you know, brothers and sisters, quote unquote, you know, not getting paid at all. So, yeah, these these union bosses are asking for way too much. And get this. They're threatening to strike. So the folks who work at the CRA are their union bosses now. If they don't get this ransom, these pay increases, all of these demands met, they're going to strike right around tax time. So those people who are depending on that tax return coming in the mail in order to, I don't know, buy groceries, pay for their heating bill, yeah. pay for their carbon tax, they're going to they're threatening to strike. You just ruined my fun on that, by the way, because when you first said it, you're quite right. There's people who are relying on tax refunds. Over tax has been collected. They deserve the refund and they are counting on it. I was sort of just glossing over them and just thinking, hey, maybe they should strike. Right? (laughs) Just kidding. Please go away forever. Yeah, but... but, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but you've, you've called the right one. There are people who would really suffer and I certainly don't want any part of that. No. But I, again, I'm coming back to this because there's just no financial reality here that, you know, no losing company or a company where the employees are well aware, just as our public sector employees are well aware that the government is in deficit, has been in severe deficit for a number of years. As you mentioned earlier, the huge buildup in debt uh, becoming even more onerous because we've had a sharp increase in interest rates. That doesn't seem to inform any of the requests. And that was true, by the way, even in the pandemic. But as yeah. you say, many people got, uh, you know, the, just the, the two-tiered system we've got. That It's always thrown at us, two-tiered system in healthcare. Well, I'll tell you, there is a very different sort of set of rules if you're working in the public sector especially in Ottawa, compared to, I'm thinking of self-employed people must be ripping their hair out here. They don't get time off. They're always on call. They don't have, you know, family leave, et cetera, that kind of thing in the way you were discussing earlier. I mean, the list is a long one. And and by the way, they have the privilege of paying this year nearly $8,000 in Canada pension plan premiums if they just make 64000 You know what I mean? Like, or sixty six, and then they take off a little bit, 63,000 actually. I mean, are you kidding me? The discrepancy is too big. I mean, I want everyone to be healthy, happy, you know, et cetera. But the discrepancy is too big and it's coming at the expense of the private sector. It is. And this is what happens when you have people in government who aren't the adults in the room. So I'm sorry to be so grim, but these folks have no concept of fiscal discipline. Like, they don't understand where wealth comes from. The prime minister himself said many things. He said he wants to grow the economy from the heart outwards. What on earth does that mean? He said the budget would balance itself. He said, I can be forgiven for not thinking about monetary policy. No, sir, you can't. You can't. They clearly don't think about monetary policy, Mike, because they've nearly doubled the debt. This one government has nearly doubled the debt. To give you a stat, I hope your listeners are sitting down. So think back to 2019, okay? Before the COVID mess, before all this stuff, the year 2019, the Trudeau government spent more money than in any one year of the Second World War. 
adjusted for inflation and population. On what? what? Who knows? Like, they have no concept of fiscal discipline, which is why we have these massive deficits, deepening debt, and skyrocketing interest rates. It's because of them. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I was asked, we did our big uh, World Outlook Financial Conference on the weekend, and uh, we had, off the top of my head, I think we had three people come up from the States. I mean, of course, markets are global, you know, talking commodities or whatever. And they asked me, and they said, I mean, they couldn't discern... Uh, uh, not just a fiscal plan, but a plan for economic growth. Like, what's your plan? What's your, what's your deal here? Because uh, they're highly critical of their own government, especially in the energy sphere, but they were more critical of ours in the energy sphere. You know, and yeah, other than immigration, I can't really think of any any kind of concerted push that acknowledges the need for economic growth. And it's getting late in the game for that. Uh, but again, I, I'm going to come back to something here quickly, Chris, is that Keep in mind, our MPs gave themselves three raises during the pandemic. Yep. You know, again, I don't know how to s- shout out loud the, di- the discrepancy between that and a huge percentage of Canadians. You know, it's, I think the polls on average are something like 53 to 60% are really struggling now with higher costs of everything plus the higher interest rates after being assured by the federal, uh, by the uh, central bank, by Tiff Macklin rates are going to stay low for longer. And he said, let me make this perfectly clear. Rates are going to stay low for longer. And of course they he didn't. Did. Or his definition of longer is, are you kidding me? You mm-hmm. know, but yeah, I, I just think that these wage demands just are a further reflection, not the first or second or third even. This is a further rese- a reflection of a very big financial difference uh, between the public sector, especially at the federal level, and the private sector, who's paying those bills. And it's just, people got to decide whether it bothers them or not, or the way, whether they want to do something about it. Well, to quote Franco again, uh, taxpayers should be mad. They should be mad as hell mm-hmm. at this government, and they should say so, because we can't afford this, to be really, really blunt. Um, to, to put it in perspective, like, look at the most recent thing that we found out about them, right, with this just transition nonsense. The, mm-hmm. the numbers attached to that are just mind-boggling. It, it, it's, it's potentially affecting more than 2 million jobs. If you add up the salaries just of those 2 million-something jobs, it's $219 billion a year. They, they yeah. reference Scotland as doing a good job. This is their own language and their own numbers, Mike. They reference Scotland with their just New Deal as being a good thing to do. If you put that in Canadian context... That's $37 billion. They could call this thing just kill Alberta. They don't understand where wealth generation comes from or where these taxes are supposed to come from. And so this is where folks like speak up, contact your member of parliament, contact your premier. And here's some magic words to use on a politician. Tell them that you will not only not vote for them yourself, you're going to door knock against them in their riding if they don't stop this. That'll pay attention because they might have their job threatened. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I've always said this, uh, policies always have consequences. And a, yep. a lot of times we ignore them until they hit us, but policies all have consequences. And the one that, in this is an overriding thing, the fact that we don't value economic growth as the foundation of our standard of living, that will have consequences. Uh, it already is for now, about half the population. Their standard of living is getting lowered because of the rising cost of interest rate, rising cost of goods and services. So it's already impacting a good chunk. Uh, others, not as many, I mean, a, a portion of those people, 
but they're going to be out of their house. We have a recent poll by uh, Yahoo Maru saying that 45% of people on a variable rate mortgage said that they could only last about another 8.3 months at this rate. Uh, people on a fixed said about 9.7 months. In other words, they better start looking for a realtor. Uh, and it's all because, I mean, these are all, it doesn't matter, you know, fingerprints are all over government policy on this. But I just think, again, sorry, I'm being a broken record here. No, all good. I just come back to that's the environment that we're getting these kind of wage demands. And even with inflation high, like inflation certainly going to drop. They're going to have a base, uh, a base month effect, meaning we'll compare our May gasoline rates with what we had last May, which were phenomenally elevated, you know, and through the summer. So inflation always falls down once you start comparing to those inflationary months. So we're already going to get that. We're already seeing it slow down over three month periods, et cetera. But it doesn't matter. The cost of living doesn't, you know, yes, as I said to, to Michael Le- Levy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I-, I just think it's a very tough time and we need a lot more realism. And unfortunately, it's already come home to bite. But I, I got to say to you, Chris, you guys do great work on behalf of taxpayers. And uh, people can, as I say, take it or leave it. They're not worried about this. They are worried about it. They think, oh, 27%, 47% over three years sounds about right. Fair enough. But you should know the numbers. And the place to go is taxpayer.com. Chris, thanks so much for finding time for us. Thank you so much for caring about this, Mike. Let's bring Mike Levy in again. Uh, by surprise, Mike, I want to talk a little bit about interest rates. <laughs> but oh, again, I mean, that's the only subject in town. I mean, every market analyst is just studying what the Federal Reserve did. Uh, I've had the pleasure of doing a couple of chats. I, I think I started off the World Outlook Conference saying this. You know, we're not forecasting the way we used to. All we're really forecasting is central bank and government manipulation of something. You know, so it's amazing. But one of the things I want to check with you is, it is fascinating how sentiment shifts. And I think there's a distinct change in sentiment to the bullish side over the last couple of months, let's say. Surprised the heck out of me. Just before I go to that, Mike, I've just got a comment that the World Outlook Conference, the financial conference this year was right up at the top of those that uh, you, we've done over the years, decades. Uh, uh, it was unreal to see over 800 people in the room and the way it was accepted and the professionalism. I don't think there's a conference like that around that does it on a sustaining basis. So I just say good on you and good on the money talks people. And and so much appreciated that people came and the analysts flew from all over, you know, uh, you know, back live again. I sincerely thank the sponsors and the public who came, especially I love the ones who came up and said two things. One is uh, nice to be back. But the other thing they said, Mike, is we support Money Talks. I tell my friends and my family and I can't express enough how much I appreciate that. Anyways, what, what's going on? I mean, that that's the whole thing, uh, particularly in my head. And why the big turnaround in sentiment? Almost 180 degrees from late last fall. And uh, now the talk is, Mike, in some circles, some very good and influential and knowledgeable circles, is the markets are going to move higher, the equity markets and the economy, throughout 2023. And um uh, some analysts are, are, are saying it's going to be a pretty significant year. And those that are even a little more cautious, of course, there's those analysts on the other side who say, no, it's not. But there's the ones that are a little more cautious but are looking for higher moves in 2023, saying that maybe we're going to peak sometime mid-year, but the year is going to end up higher than what it started in January. Yeah. And as you say, you can, one of the things I've noticed, Mike, is I could 
pick any scenario and I can find some quality analysts to say that's what's going to happen. And again, it's back to time frame. Uh, you know, that's very important when it comes to interest rates. Some people think interest rates are going to start dropping in the fall. Others says, no, it's going to rate till 224 to start dropping, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, it just feels, you know, and I used uh, Stanley Druckenmiller's quote earlier this week on, on uh, Money Talks tweets, just saying he's never been in an environment where it's been more difficult to forecast six months out you know, in his 45 year career, and he's a legendary investor. And I'm with him. Because again, it comes back to what does the central bank want to do? What do the the governments want to do? And so I'm not looking as much as individual earnings to determine what I think the market's doing. Although obviously, that's important. I mean, I'm a stock picker, not an index guy right now. But I'm just saying it's a confusing environment. Uh, Well, yes, it is. And um You've got to look at what's changed uh, to turn the sentiment uh, more bullish towards, uh, you know, or, or, or more bullish for 2023. But um, analysts like Ned Davis is one very well-known analyst, and analysts like him are saying, and I'm quoting, the current recovery will be sending the major equity benchmarks back to record highs in 2023. Now, you've got, as you said, you've got other ones that are more cautious. But, Mike, this is in the face of Jerome Powell making absolutely, he's unequivocal, rates are going to go up. And it, it, in the face of he just said that in the fall of last year, well, that's what happened. And the markets went into a trough in September. It, he's saying the same thing again. But markets are, you know, the, the feeling is equity markets are going to go up. Yeah, that was amazing. I mean, I, I forget, was it Tuesday he came out and was talking about that? And that was because the market interpreted his statements, you know, uh, you know, the, the week before when he raised interest rate, they interpreted it too bullish for his liking. So he said, oh, wait a second, we're not lowering rates. We're, you know, they're going to go up a few more times. Get ready for that. And again, I think one of the most interesting aspects of today's market is how he's being ignored. People don't, or a lot of people don't believe him. No, and he said unequivocally, as has the Bank of Canada, not quite so unequivocally, but unequivocally, that we're not lowering rates. So don't yeah. don't look for that to be a catalyst. But the other thing I wanted to throw out at you, Mike, is, and this just wowed everybody. I don't know anybody who got the employment figures right for January. Uh, U.S. adding 517,000 new jobs Unemployment rate to a 53-year low hasn't been this since May of 1969. I mean, heck, uh, two things. Number one, more people working. Economy is going to be stronger. They're going to be spending money. But damn, Mike, that's inflationary. So that could just poke interest rates even a little higher. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot of dispute about the number, but not the direction. That's important. Like they're saying, you know, you added back some numbers here, added back, that's what you get the lofty number, but the direction wasn't disputed. And as you say, you know, they've been telling us right from the get-go, they were watching employment the whole time. Well, employment hasn't weakened sufficiently. Maybe it's a lag effect for sure, but I'm just saying that's part of the mix and that mix spells higher rates. You know, if, if people wanted to go on a single variable, yeah, it's a fascinating time out there. And of course, good news, Mike, we'll be here to chronicle it. Oh, we will. And boy, I like I'm waiting for maybe a change in topic with you, Mike, but any other topic now just becomes secondary. So here you've got just ended Powell on one side and you have the economy and people's confidence on the other side. Oh, you want another topic? How about this? Who's winning the Super Bowl? 
Oh, well, I mean, I've got to tell you that I'm a Kansas City, maybe not fan, but I put a buck or two on Kansas City. How about you? Okay. No, I'm not going to answer that. No. <laughs> I watched my New York Giants crushed by Philadelphia. They've been great all year when J- when Jason Hurts been the quarterback. But I don't know. Uh, I don't know which one. I think it's a great matchup I'll be watching. And yeah, if I had to put $2 down, uh, no spread. I think it's ridiculous to think Kansas City's going to win, but I would. You know, because, you know, Philadelphia's got a better offensive line, defensive line. They've got great skilled positions. You know, they've got great cornerbacks. The list is on, and I think they are stronger. Their defensive line is stronger than Kansas City's. So I guess I'm betting on Patrick Mahomes, which, as I say, may not be the smartest thing I've done this week. Mike, we'll check it out. I'll check you out next week, but great. Thanks for the time. Okay, Mike, have a good week. You know, one of the interesting things for all the talk on the political sphere about how much we care about jobs, you know, it doesn't stand up to a lot of scrutiny when you look at specific areas about how easy is it to do business. And one of the ways is, of course, over-regulation. So I'm so pleased to have with me Laura Jones, is Executive Vice President, Chief Strategic Officer of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Now, they've got business in mind. Laura, thanks for finding the time for us. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Michael. Let's start with this whole thing. I mean, you are the one, actually, you and the CFIB originating the Awareness Week for red tape and how much, uh, how onerous it is. I did a little thing last week on Nova Scotia uh, appointing a bureau to look at the red tape for doctors. And it was a huge percentage. Over a third of them they found were unnecessary, which represented thousands of patient visits. That could have happened. But the doctor's doing some red tape stuff. And I think that's across the board. That's At least that's my sense of it. Yeah, no, we've been doing Red Tape Awareness Week for 14 uh, years now. And when I go back and think about, it seemed like kind of a crazy thing to start 14 years ago. But it just seemed to me that governments do three important things that affect our lives. They tax, they spend, and they regulate. And when it comes to taxes and spending, there's a fair amount of debate and discussion and accountability and transparency. We can argue that, you know, of course, we'd always want more accountability, but there's a fair amount of that. When it comes to regulation, there's way too little. And when we started this 14 years ago, there was almost nothing in the way of any kind of government measures of the burden. Uh, Occasionally, you know, you'll get a red tape story that is just so crazy that it'll hit the front page of the paper and everyone says, oh, that's crazy. We shut down a kid's lemonade stand or that's too much red tape. But there wasn't a concerted effort to say, how do we have more accountability when it comes to regulation? And I would differentiate between necessary rules and red tape. So how do we there should be accountability for the whole thing. both necessary rules and red tape, but the red tape side, if we can reduce and eliminate red tape, we are freeing up time um, and energy and money to spend on the things that we care about. Um, And so this year we looked at the doctor's um, side of it. We took what Nova Scotia did and we said, hey, let's look at um, what could happen if we uh, freed doctors up. And just if we just freed doctors up from 10% of the red tape that they deal with, That's the equivalent of 5.5 million patient visits across Canada every year. So 
So here's a problem that governments are hand-wringing over and that is having serious negative consequences on Canadians. We took a filter and we said, let's look at this through a red tape lens and what could we do? And I give Nova Scotia a lot of credit. We gave them a Golden Scissors Award last year for the work they're doing. Um, they're, they've done some groundbreaking work um, on this front. And we're encouraging other provinces to do the same. Manitoba just announced uh, in, in during our Red Tape Awareness Week, I'm proud to say that they're going to follow suit. Anyway, big topic, lots to talk about, but it should be a lens. Whether we're talking about housing affordability or healthcare availability, this should be a lens that we consider um, when we're trying to have better outcomes in these areas. And it's too often neglected. Well, I'm wondering if people aren't as focused on this because they don't appreciate the cost. Like when you raise a tax, a lot most people get, oh, that's going to cost me more, you know, if they raise sales taxes, for example, or, or some other aspect. And a lot of people I don't find have a clear vision uh, of how it's passed through to consumers or in the case you just mentioned with the doctors. I mean, you know, we're all complaining. We can't get a doctor's visit and yet, and so are the premiers, by the way, and yet Man, you remove useless red tape. And I want to emphasize what you just said, which is you're not talking about deregulating society. You're talking about getting rid of useless red tape. And it seems that every time someone has a look, there's not just a couple out there. There's tens of thousands of useless, ineffective regulations that no level of government is measuring their effectiveness. Yeah, I think there are a couple of things. I think, first of all, you're right. It's just not as visible as taxes. You know, if taxes go up, that's very that's very visible to people. You feel it. And so you're quite right that when we're especially when it's kind of that a lot of little hits that you're taking to your time and energy, it's got to be pretty bad before you um, start um, getting upset and pretty visible and pretty noticeable. Um, I want to come back to the doctors because this we can we can actually look at some examples of how this plays out. When Nova Scotia set its target for a ten percent uh, red tape reduction, they're having to really roll up their sleeves, Mike, and and really look at you know what are the irritants. And so I'll give you an example. One form they have there is um, doctors need to fill it out so that patients can have um, access to employment assistance. So this is pretty important, and this is like hitting low income individuals. Apparently, this form is called the blue form. It was just a nightmare. The doctors were flagging it as a problem. When you look at what they're doing to streamline that form, it's really roll up your sleeves kind of work. Where can we take something that you had to fill in and turn it into a checkbox? How can we make sure you only fill out the parts of the form that you need to fill out? That takes a lot of, of time. Um, but just that one form alone, streamlining it, they're estimating that it's saving 10 to 30% of the time per form, which is translating to, on the conservative end of that, translating to 6,000 hours a year, which is 18,000 patient visits. It's in a small province. This is significant. And I don't think we can afford to ignore it anymore. For a long time, um, you know, we didn't have some of the challenges we have now, like labor shortages and other, other things. But we've got labor shortages. We've got an aging population. I mean, red tape, you can't afford it the best of times. But, you know, I, I've been saying, like, I'm imagining my capacity to deal with all this red tape at 80 is going to be a little different than it was at, at 40, right? And, and, and also, we've got labor shortages. So it's, it's really important we get on top of this. 
Well, it is so timely what you've put out because, of course, we've got the Premier's meeting with the Prime Minister on healthcare this week. But that's one of many meetings that have taken place. We've got every politician talking about healthcare. Why? Because the public's finally saying, I can't get a family doctor, as one example. Or we rank last when it comes to uh, waiting for treatment uh, in an emergency room after four hours of being there. Uh, The list is a long one. I've chronicled them on this show. But it's such a pertinent topic when you can translate it the way the CFIB has into, it's not just red tape. Those are 6,000 visits or 18,000 visits, 6,000 hours, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, And I hope that that gets people's attention uh, as well it should, given that's such a top concern. And another one that you've uh, looked at is, of course, affordability in real estate. And again, I don't think people appreciate to the degree to which regulation slows down supply. And man, we've got a supply shortage. Oh yeah, we've got to do, you know, I think there's a, a big deep dive that we've we've got to do on on how red tape affects affordability of housing. Um, it's in some ways it's it's like the healthcare issue. It's low-hanging fruit um, to uh, get rid of some of that. And again, Nova Scotia is leading the way. I'll tell you one thing I think they're doing right in Nova Scotia is there. Um, service effectiveness and, and regulatory reform team reports directly to the premier and they come in behind the priorities of the premier. And so they're now looking at housing affordability and I'm excited to see what they might uh, come up with. And because I think it will be replicable. Uh, uh, there's so many horror stories around um, the kind of bureaucratic nightmares you get into um, on the on the permitting side when it comes to um, housing and of course not just housing big projects there's lots of lots of areas we could talk about where we would get a significant economic lift um, if we were able to reduce uh, red tape so I, I think they're they've, they've got that right the other one I wanted to mention uh, Mike just as an example is is what happened with passports I mean what a mess like we gave them the paperweight award this year but here's the kind of impact it has on people i mean we can we can just everybody's like oh yeah that was a mess but if you were in that nightmare about a quarter of people had to take time off work to deal with their passport issues and and another quarter had to cancel travel plans that's incredibly stressful for people and, you know, there's no way to really put a financial um, price tag on that. But 5% were paying people to stand in line. And this is the kind of thing that I think makes people feel very uneasy at a, at a deep level because you want to be proud of your government. And I think Canadians in particular, you know, peace, order and good government. But you have, a, you have a, 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 an experience like that on something as basic as a passport. And you kind of go peace order and, and hold on a minute. Where did the good government go? Like what's going on here? Like it kind of undermines that trust between government and the people that government serves. So it's more important than the dollar value that we can assign to it. it it's the stress, the time, the confidence in government. It's, it's all these intangible things. Well, it's funny, uh, at the opening comment, which you wouldn't have heard, I was talking about Yves Giraud, you know, Parliamentary Budget Office, talking specifically what you're saying. And I mean, it's it's hard to go away with any kind of positive feed. He says, um, he, he just says that the public sector is not working. It's broken. And he uses the passport department as a specific example. But one of many, especially if you read any Auditor General's reports, this is not a new revelation, but people, you know, experience that one firsthand. But it just seems across the government. And and that's what I was going to ask you. It would seem like, why would this be a left or a right issue? 
you know, in this country. Efficiency shouldn't be, I would think, that uh, giving taxpayers the best benefit of their money, and then you've got other money to either give back to taxpayers or spend on something else. I mean, it's, but I mean, every Auditor General's report chronicles uh, ineffective spending, unmeasured spending, missing billions, literally missing billions. So I'm not surprised that they're not taking on regulation. In fact, I think it's not in their interest to actually take on regulation because we've hired so many people to regulate. Yeah. And I mean, it comes back to accountability measurement. Where is that going to come from? And I think sometimes the push for this has to come from outside of government. And so that's where, um, you know, I've actually had a, 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 a quite a long interest, a career long interest in this because I was fascinated by how much accountability there was on the tax and, and government spending side compared to regulation. And, you know, there have been some good efforts in Canada. Like Canada could really be a leader in this space. Mike, I agree with you, first of all, it shouldn't be partisan. This is not a partisan issue. This is about account- any more than having accountability with government spending is a partisan issue. Like those aren't partisan issues. That's basic accountability. You and I might disagree on where there should be more regulation or how much regulation, but that there be some measurements, some accountability to the public on what's going on. I think most sensible people, their heads are nodding uh, to that. And so with that, you need better measurement. And we do have some good examples in, um, in Canada around that. British Columbia, actually, 2001, one of the first provinces to start measuring the overall burden of regulation, how many regulatory requirements are in the system. They set a target to reduce it by one third in three years. They met that target. But I'll tell you, Mike, at the time, I remember talking to ministers and saying, then what are you going to do once that target's hit? And they said, well, then we're done. We don't need to measure anymore. And I said, how fast do you think regulatory creep is going to set back in again if you stop measuring and reporting? Fortunately, They've kept at it. And so we actually can track now. We've got, you know, 20 years of data in British Columbia. Is it perfect? No. Would I like to see other measures in, in, in BC and in other provinces? Yes. But other provinces are starting to follow that lead. We've now got good measures in Manitoba. Alberta's come on board. Um, Nova Scotia's doing a good job. Saskatchewan. So we've, we've got some momentum. I don't want to leave your listeners thinking there's no hope on this, but it's just that there's a lot more that needs to be done. I, and again, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Uh, and so this is me talking, everyone. As you can tell the difference in our voices, I think. But, but Laura, I mean, it is incredible to me to see the disconnect between politicians who at least pay lip service to economic growth. And here is low-hanging fruit about how to boost economic growth, very much like interprovincial trade barriers, which is, again, regulation. But, uh, you know, we could have a big boost, as you say, in economic growth without costing taxpayers or the government anything. It's not like their favorites of let's put $3 billion into this and you'll get 7 million jobs. Well, you know, at the rate they're talking about it, we'll each have three jobs by tomorrow morning. But this is one of the things that does not cost. It saves. And uh, that's why I find it so astounding, so little attention that's paid to it. And I don't know if it would resonate with Canadians if some politician stood up and said, this is going to be a major plank of my economic side of the platform. But, I mean, it just seems like uh, such an easy thing to do. I don't have to spend if I'm a politician. I don't have to go into my budget. I'm just making things more efficient. And the, the rest will take care of themselves. And, in fact, I'll get more revenue from taxes. 
Yeah, I think it is. It, it's low hanging fruit in the sense that it doesn't have to be expensive, and there's a big lift you can get. I mean, the healthcare yeah. stuff shows ten percent. Uh, reduction in red tape and we're talking about 5.5 million patient visits across Canada. Wow. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a big lift, but I think that the challenge with it is that it is, it requires a, it's, it, it, it it's also, it's low hanging fruit, but it's also a tough slog in a way because it requires a sustained commitment to stuff that isn't necessarily going to feel like something that you can put in lights politically. I mean, that's what Red Tape Awareness mm-hmm. Week for us is about. It's like, how do we take some of these good initiatives, like what's going on in Nova Scotia, give them a Golden Scissors Award, put it on the national um, uh, stage, encourage other provinces to do it and say, there's something in it for you if you do this. Um, politically and bureaucratically, we will be applauding. There will be a- applause from outside of government um, for this work because it's a tough slog to go through all those forms and figure out which fields are still needed and which ones aren't. I mean, I don't, you know, that's not, for most people, that's not their idea of a good time and it's not politically sexy or glamorous. So I think that's the challenge that associations and others outside of government who are concerned about this have is how can we creatively put the pressure on um, in order to encourage the right thing? And by the way, Mike, I know we're talking about some of the business impacts and some of the impacts in healthcare, but I would say I often say that small businesses are disproportionately hit relative to big businesses. But if you extend that even further, I would say those with low incomes, those um, with disabilities, those who have other challenges are even harder hit, you know, the fewer resources you have to deal with this, the harder it is. And often those with low incomes are navigating some fairly serious paperwork um, in order to get the support they need. Yeah. And it was, there's a couple of things there. Um, but I want to talk a little bit more about the smaller businesses because it may be, I mean, I'm saying it's expensive across the board as you are, but you know, maybe a big firm actually has a department to deal with it. They may have an in-house lawyer as an example and what, or maybe a couple of accountants who, who look at this kind of stuff specifically, but come on, when you're a small business, you don't have those luxuries. And so it's expensive and it's time consuming. And I have yet to meet a single person who started their own business. And I love those people. I, 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 I just think they show so much uh, fortitude and courage, et cetera, especially in the last several years, who said, you know what? I want to go in business so I can fill out paperwork. You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? Said, I, said no one ever. Yeah. yeah. No, that's not why they go into business. And of course, a certain amount of paperwork and, um, you know, complying with rules is important. And business owners would say about 70% of what they do, they would classify as necessary regulation. It's the 30% that is driving them crazy. And you're quite yeah. right. That's the smallest businesses, they, pen, they spend over $7,000 per employee complying with government rules um, in Canada. Again, not all of that is red tape, but a good chunk of it is. Um, and that's about 10 times what the bigger businesses per employee costs are. So it's a serious disadvantage um, for smaller businesses. But here's a here's a, a little stat that, that, that should sort of um, worry us all. Um, and that is when we ask business owners, um, and this is pre-COVID, but fairly, fairly recent pre, like it was, it wasn't that long before COVID hit that we asked this question, but we said, you know, um, would you tell your kid, like based on the, 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 you know, the regulation that you have to deal with, would you tell your kids to go into business? You know, what do you say? 63% said, 
based on the regulatory burden, I would say to my kids, don't do it. Wow. And, you know, I, and that's much higher by the way, than in the States, we asked the same question in the States and it was 40 some odd percent in the States. So again, this points to that. We've got a, we've got a serious challenge uh, because we need entrepreneurship in Canada. We need strong entrepreneurship in Canada. And, um, and, and that I think is worrying, but you talk to business owners, they say there are whole new classes of rules that we didn't have to deal with, um, Mm -hmm. when we started. Um, I talk to other business owners who say, you know, if, if, if we started today, there's no way we could be in compliance with everything we need to do. And others who have told me that um, even when they started, that that was tough and they basically gradually got in compliance as they, as they, could, as they could afford and manage to, uh, to do it. So uh, there's no question that it's, it's very, very challenging for business owners. Uh, just a couple of quick other things. Is I know in the past the CFIB has done estimates on what it might be costing, and you said earlier that it's not a perfect measure because there's so many other costs, like frustration might be one, <laughs> you know, emotional problems uh, dealing with some of the frustration of the regulation. Uh, but have you put sort of a dollar figure, just ballpark, on what it's costing the economy? Yeah, uh, it's about thirty-nine billion, and that's just for businesses. That's not for wow. that's not that's not individuals and their two hours that they're spending in line to deal with their passports and the time off work they're 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 taking. So it's much higher than that, and it's a basement floor estimate. That's the cost of regulation. About eleven billion of that is red tape. Eleven billion yep. a year. So you know, some regulation. It, yeah, it's going to cost us to comply with it, but we're not arguing. You know, I don't think people are. Um, wanting to say that we shouldn't have to wear uh, hard hats and, and, and steel-toed boots on construction sites or traffic laws are, you know, are, you know those things, everyone agrees uh, with that. But there are, there's an awful lot of just forms that are longer than they need to be, rules that you just scratch your head and say, what the heck is that about? Um, unnecessary delays, wait times that are way too long. Um, that's the red tape uh, piece of it. And of course, it's a challenge because you're doing municipal, provincial, and federal levels of regulations. And I mean, people should understand we're talking hundreds of thousands of regulations uh, that people have to comply with. Uh, the other one is this, just quickly, you know, people should understand there wouldn't be near as big a lobbying business, multi-billion dollar lobbying business, if there wasn't this degree of red tape where people were working, uh, companies or individuals working hard to not be subject to them because they're unproductive or counterproductive. So that's just another side is the politics of this is, uh, you know, let me donate to your campaign. Maybe you'll give me an exemption on that regulation. Oh yeah, uh, for sure. There's, um, you know, there's certainly that, that piece of it. And just to come back to one of the other costs you were talking about is I'd love to be able to measure, you know, how long does it take your blood pressure to come back down to, uh, uh, to normal after you've had one of these frustrating experiences where you're in voicemail jail or you're trying to get information off a government website so you can comply with some regulation that they want you to comply with and, and you can't do it. Um, we did a public opinion poll actually as part of Red Tape Awareness Week too and just you know, quickly I'll share with you that about three quarters 
of uh, Canadians have recent, you know, have had a recent frustration with government that to deal with red tape. And interestingly enough, um, when we ask what level of government, it's the federal level of government that is is the big one. Now, maybe that, maybe that, maybe there's a correlation there with the passport problem. Um, yeah. But uh, but you know, people are 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 pretty frustrated, I think, with the federal level of government around some of the service um, that they're getting. Yeah. Well, as I say, exactly what my comment was about to open the show. Uh, look, l- let me finish with this. Just one quick one, real short. When you think of absurd regulations, just give us a teaser what comes to mind. Oh, my gosh. Well, we've been talking a lot about forms, so I'll leave that one. But there's one that – there's one that – there's I'll, two quick ones. One – bowling alley in Quebec that was required to have a permit for every single lane and every single piece of pinball equipment. Now we nominated that for one of our paperweight awards and, and then uh, the minister actually fixed it based on what we did. So there is hope here for the business owners out there. And so then we gave the minister golden scissors. The other one is this really stupid, this comes from a small town in, uh, in British Columbia up in Smithers. They were requiring a business owner to lit. It was a rural business and they were expanding a small expansion of the business. And in order to expand, they were requiring the business owner to build a small stretch of sidewalk that connected literally nothing to nowhere. There was no other sidewalk for miles around. And business owner said, well, spend it on any other thing that you think would help the community, save money. No, had to be a sidewalk connecting, uh, you know, yeah. nowhere to nowhere. And it's that kind of thing that just drives people bananas. Uh, you know, you're you're just so right. I mean, I'm, I was nodding here, just thinking of all the examples I could come up with. But I just want to congratulate the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and the work you're doing. It is so important to bring this forward. You know, we're at a time when you can't be casual about economic growth. We can't afford not to maximize the opportunities in this country. And if we can keep this in the spotlight, good things will happen. And good, good things will happen regardless of where you are in the political spectrum. Laura Jones, thanks so much for taking time. Thank you so much, Michael. Hey, just one more time. I want to remind you, it's very important to me to support Special Olympics. These are people who are completely ignored and forgotten regularly in society. And was there ever a bigger case than when it came to the pandemic? I don't remember a single health officer talking specifically about people with intellectual disabilities. Maybe they did, but I never heard it. And of course, people with intellectual disabilities were second only to people over 80 for mortality rates. So, I mean, it's just something that's not acceptable to me. Obviously, I've been supporting for a long time with our whole Money Talks team. And Ozzy and I are going to be plunging. That's right, plunging for dollars, I'll call that. And you know what? I am the biggest cold weather uh, water wimp in history. But I want two things. Either you donate to support us, or even better, if you'll come and join us on the plunge. But if you're going to donate, it's sort of a four-step thing, straightforward. Go to Google and just put in Polar Plunge BC. Polar Plunge BC. Then you click on Special Olympics. It'll be right there, right up front. Special Olympics BC. It's right there. And then when you get to that uh, page, then click on Donate. And then look for Michael Campbell's Money Talks as the team to donate to. So that's one set. The second thing is, hey, if you actually want to join us, how about just dropping us a line? Go at info at mikesmoneytalks.ca, info at mikesmoneytalks.ca, and just put in the subject line, I'll plunge. Then all the good stuff starts happening. Everyone's going to know that you're a huge supporter of people with intellectual disabilities. Anyways, important to me. I really appreciate the support. Time now for the quote of the week. 
First, a fact. 100,000 tons of lithium are produced per year, the majority of which with child labor in the Congo. So under the current conditions, going to electric vehicles by 2050 in the U.S. alone would require 306,000 tons per year for the batteries. So that's 100,000 we do now, huge increase needed, but that's just taking the U.S. into account. I mean, much more if it's a global thing, and it is. As a written report, though, by Climate and Community Project at the University of California, Davis states, this boom in demand would be met by the expansion of mining. The report then goes on to say in quotes, large-scale mining entails social and environmental harm, in many cases irreversibly damaging landscapes without the consent of the affected communities, end of quote. So how do you sort of justify that or rectify those two things? You know, the increased supply needed for EVs that necessitates a massive increase in mining and it's accompanying social environment harm with the push for renewable energy and electric vehicles. Well, simply put, you cut demand, then you won't need as much supply. And the report goes on to say how, and this is the part you must be paying close attention to. In quotes, the U.S. can achieve zero emissions transportation while limiting the amount of lithium mining necessary by reducing the car dependence of the transportation system. Reducing the car dependence of the transportation system. In other words, look out for your right to own a car. I mean, come on, we already have government restrictions on the purchase of internal combustion engines. They've already been mandated. They're coming. But they can also ban car ownership of both EVs and internal combustion engine cars. Or making the cost so much more prohibitive that, of course, it'll be discouraging both. And you know what? I think only the most naive ignore that possibility. Hey, just a reminder, as I was just saying, if you want, this is the kind of stuff we were talking about broadly at the World Outlook Conference. So if you want to, you can still grab a hold of the videos there. There's some great, some of the talks were just absolutely spectacular. All of them were very, very good. So you just go to worldoutlook.com, worldoutlookconference.com, excuse me, worldoutlookconference.com and grab your copy of it. Watch it as your leisure, but there's so much good stuff about what's coming in the world, but also the investment markets. Time now to talk a little real estate. I'm going to bring Ozzy Jurek in there right now. Hey, Ozzy, I was noticing on ozbuzz.ca, I mean, of course you talk about this regularly, but really the percentage of condos that are owned by investors, and I'm sure you know all of them, but are owned by investors across the country. <laughs> yeah, it is surprising. There's a new report out by the Canadian Housing Statistics Program, which shows for the first time the real extent that investors have in, in the housing market. Now, some 40% of condos in Ontario are now investment properties, and some of the ownership in London, Sarnia, and Woodstock, for instance, as high as 80%. So that's quite an astounding number. Yeah, I mean, but of course, we have to remember that without those investors, you don't have supply, and we need supply. People moan all the time, and rightfully so, that I'm having trouble finding a place, especially to rent uh, at this point, or to buy, of course. But uh, to rent, well, you need those investors in order to create the supply that we need. We need more investors than we have already. You're so right. I mean, we, we have had years where there was no pre-sales. And sure enough, two or three years later, there was even less vacancy rates. You know, I mean, even in BC, we are, we are up uh, 36% together with Nova Scotia, 36% of our market is investors, 29% of Manitoba, and even New Brunswick has 22% investors. We're picking up the slack that we might otherwise, uh, you know, 
even have more empty units. Yeah, what worries me, though, is that, of course, with the rising interest rates, the whole point was to slow down the economy, slow down demand, slow down inflation. Well, this is one area we can't afford to have the supply slow down in any way. You know, uh, we need that action. But again, that's not the only thing. As you heard earlier, I was talking to Laura Jones about regulation, and that's something you and I've talked about so often in the real estate market. But my goodness, here we come, 2023 more regulatory changes specifically we're talking now about real estate yeah and it's you know there's a change to the bc strata properties act which now has removed rental restrictions which on the face of it should make more units available that are available for rent and then there's expansion of the bc speculation tax to lion's Bay, squamish north cowichan duncan ladysmith and lake cowichan i'm not exactly sure how they qualify to be so <laughs> singled out and then we have the implementation of the anti-flipping rule. So any purchase of residential property that you make and sell within 12 months, it's now considered to have been flipped and profit is taxed as business income. And then you look at the federal prohibition of the residential uh, buying purchase, residential property by non-Canadians, which has a huge slew and only we only had 10 days to really figure out what it all means. We're still not quite sure which areas are affected. And then we have the BC Home buyer's recession period rules that came in effect a month ago and most realtors are still scratching their head to understand it all but there's an example i mean uh, i'm sure laura's smiling hearing that but that's an example that the list of uh, regulations just keeps on expanding and you know give you one though an example you were saying uh you know in bc they're changing uh the strata rules you can't have a rental restriction an age restriction well i'm wondering how the heck are they going to police that I mean, how do I well, know if there's a there's something available in a building, you know? Well, I think actually that's that's pretty good. because Look, if I used to I own a unit and I can't rent it, but through personal hardship, I mean, my, my daughter moved to Ontario, I want to move in with them. Now I can't rent the unit and that has been taken away. I'll be the one yelling and screaming. Yes, I can get a tenant in there. In fact, it will like increase the value of those units right now. And you sell them, you have to have an owner. But in the future, they can all be sold to an investor. And in fact, it'll have the opposite effect. It will increase prices, not decrease prices. Okay, let me come to something else before time runs out here. And that you've got the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions. They're floating even more regulations. Well, you and I talked about it, uh, I guess, three weeks ago when it was a possibility. And this is just a proposal that is open for comments until April 14. These proposals have a way, though, of having been decided and just sort of rubber stamped by us, uh, the suffering public, because they have three new rules that are on tough. It's very tough for lenders already. Borrowing has dropped, yet they have created three new efforts to... uh, to make it even tougher. First, the portion of highly leveraged borrowers that a bank can hold in its mortgage portfolio. So they have to declare who they are, then tightening the loan servicing metrics, and then increase, of course, the stress test. And the crazy thing is, you wonder what problem they're trying to solve. First of all, it's all new home buyers that are affected. And secondly, mortgage experts say tighter bank rules push the borrower to subprime lenders. And so they're paying instead of 7%, is already high, now they're into the 9 to 14% range if they want to get a loan. So you wonder why. Well, my goodness. Uh, Ozzy, I also can't let you go without saying this. Got a, uh, 
an email this week saying you did a fabulous job at the World Outlook Forum. I think everybody agrees. But what they said is what I'm really doing is I'm dreaming about seeing Ozzy and Mike and later Hosen at the Polar <laughs> Plunge for Special Olympics. I'm going to be joined by uh, my brother Gordon. He's going to jump, but other people are volunteering and I want to push them into it. We're looking for other people to plunge with us. And we're going to probably do it March 4th, sometime in the early afternoon at English Bay. So if you're in that area or you want to make a trip, you can join Ozzy and I. You just have to go to Mike, I'm sorry, go to info at mikesmoneytalks.ca, say, I'll plunge in the subject line. We'll make you famous. And we're hoping for a couple people, Ozzy, who look just as good as you do in later hosen. <laughs> well, that's always wishful thinking. Look, Mike, I just <laughs> want to leave you with this thought, seeing that you pushed me into this again. You know, I have this vision of cold water for the next months, but please remember something. They always say when life gives you a lemon, make lemonade. Or they say when life gives you a lemon, squeeze it in somebody else's eye. What I say is when life gives you lemons, order the lobster tail. <laughs> I'm not sure what the lobster tail is in the polar plunge, but I'll be there with Ozzy. I hope you join us. As I say, you can go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, put info at mikesmoneytalks.ca, and you can also donate now, that's the, that's the easy way out, but you know how much I'd appreciate that. I really do. Just go to, uh, just type in in Google, uh, which is Polar Plunge BC, Polar Plunge BC, then click on Special Olympics, uh, Special Olympics BC, and you'll go to the Polar Plunge, all of that stuff. We'll put it up online for us, but uh, I look forward to Ozzy. He's a great sport and a very good speaker, as everyone found out at the World Outlook Conference. I'll be back. More coming. Let's go live to the trading desk. I want to bring Victor Adair in here with me. Hey, Vic, I warned you about this. I wanted to start today, though, with your impressions of the World Outlook Conference. I mean, uh, I thought there was, you know, excellent content, lots of different views, that kind of thing. But I wanted to say, you know, just give me a couple of takeaways. I think the first thing, Mike, was um, it was just so great to be back in the room again. You know, I had people come up to me the whole weekend and say, hey, we're, we're happy to be here instead of having to do, a, do it on the video. Uh, just got that eye contact. And, uh, you know, that was certainly maybe the highlight of the thing for me. Uh, with, with the different speakers, I mean, I thought probably the best content maybe ever. And we, we've done a lot of the conferences uh, and, and a range of content. I think maybe the content was kind of focused on, um, well, let's say, you know, inflation. What's going to happen to inflation? Uh, what's that going to do to Fed policy? You know, what Fed policy is going to do to the markets, that sort of thing. Certainly, uh, there's, you know, a, attention paid to different views. Different people have different opinions on, on where the economy is going. Fiscal policy. I mean, Kevin Muir delivered kind of a master class in, you know, how we've, we're all MMTers now. You know, Tony Greer from New York put on a heck of a show. So uh, I just thought it was a great conference. I was really happy to be there. Yeah, a couple things uh, out of that, for example. Uh, it was funny. I was listening to Kevin Muir, the macro tourist, and I'm sitting there going, oh, my gosh, I don't mean it. <laughs> Let me complete the sentence. But I'm thinking that's exactly what I think. I just don't call it MMT. What I've said, uh, you know, consistently is that look how they responded to every other problem, you know, whether it's the pandemic. Oh, let's print up money. Oh, we've got energy problems in Europe. Let's print up subsidies. Uh, you know, uh, Japan, not so much printing, but supporting the market with the central bank because they had a lot of money on, on reserve. But everywhere you look, the response has been let's create more cash. 
well, essentially that's MMT. That's, you know, unlimited creation of cash. So I, I found that very interesting too. The other thing though, I kept thinking, and I know it's an old refrain on money talks with you and I, but uh, it's that, you know, the time frame is important. So you had some people saying, I think rates are going down, but they clearly meant in six months time. Others saying 12 months, if you know what I mean. But if you're just sitting there listening, you know, kind of casually, you might think, well, this guy doesn't think they're going down. Yes, he does. He thinks they're going down though a year later, you know, and it's the same with all aspects of the market. Uh, I guess the one thing I walked away with is if there was a couple of themes that emerged, again, maybe not the same timing, but that, uh, you know, commodities were still a pretty good place to go. Gold would be a pretty good place. But although, you know, for example, with Martin Armstrong, he says nothing's really happened, even at this bounce. He has models that already said we we're going to back down and he needs more confidence lost in government as an example. But not that gold wasn't a good place to be, you know, but it's just different. Others were trading it. So, uh, yeah, it can be confusing, but you have to sit back and go, OK, what are they saying? What's their time frame for saying it? And what are the variables they're looking at? Well, time frame is so important. Uh, and as I've often said, you know, don't uh, don't let your time frame between your trading and your analysis get out of sync. And, and, and that does, by the way, happen to me all the time. I've got a, a longer term bias on something. So I start poking the market and the market's not ready to go yet. You know, I, I get my timing wrong. I thought the um, the thing that I was looking forward to and I, I was definitely satisfied on this point. I wanted to get people to present some ideas that I hadn't thought of, or I, I had a different opinion. And, you know, they made a strong case. And then I reflect and say, gee, you know, I, I wonder about that. I mean, James Thorne talking about kind of like a digital future. In some respects, I'm going, oh, my God, I'm scared to death of that, you know, where that could go. But, you know, it, it, he engaged me, made me think about it. So that is really the value for me of conferences is, is to get these different opinions that are well laid out. And then you, you know, it makes me think about things in a different way and or I find a trade for me that works. I'll give you an example of where seemingly there's disagreement. We had a couple of speakers really negative on the U.S. dollar, convinced that it's going down. Then we had Martin Armstrong, but he's looking at a longer term and he's thinking longer term, the U.S. dollar still has way to run. And in his world, it's very straightforward. Unless you eliminate the geopolitical risk, which was one of the big stories of the conference for me, unless you eliminate geopolitical risk, every time there's a problem, and just in the week of the conference, obviously we've got Russia heating up, the Russia-Ukraine situation heating up, with Canada even sending tanks, you know, but Poland, about Germany, about, you know, escalation in this, the help that was getting get, given to Ukraine. But, uh, you know, so as long as those geopoliticals like uh, North Korea, South Korea, obviously China, Taiwan, he says in the end, money will flow back to the U.S. for safety, you know, if those things. So he could have that long term view. And that's not inconsistent, though, with somebody who thinks on the shorter term, the U.S. dollars peaked and it's going for a heck of a ride down. Well, I, I'm not going to pat myself on the back here, but, you know, we had that closing panel and the three other guys on the panel, I certainly respect them. But when you said, what do you think the biggest surprise might be this year? And you told us that question about 12 seconds before we actually got in front of the audience. <laughs> All of us are going, oh, my God, <laughs> how do you answer that question? But. The other three guys kind of all focused on what I'd call some variation of monetary policy. And I've been writing in my blog the past couple of weeks about how I think the markets are so fixated 
on monetary policy like it's the be-all and end-all. So in front of the room, I said, I think the biggest surprise is going to be a geopolitical shock. I mean, for instance, we're all thinking, hoping, I guess, you know, that Ukraine is going to prevail against the Russians. And in the past couple of months, well, actually, since around uh, the beginning of October, thereabouts, I believe the markets have been going more and more risk on. Okay, like the the war in 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 Ukraine is is going to be a stalemate. Okay, the markets are pricing that, so we can just kind of leave that aside. Is what the markets are thinking, and they're focusing on the Fed. And the thought is, the Fed's getting set to stop raising rates, so maybe it's time to buy, buy, buy. So we've seen the the broad markets up about twenty percent. That's the stock indices in the states, and of course, some of the dogs in the market last year have been smoking hot to the upside as people are embracing risk. We're seeing the U.S. dollar fall against other currencies. The British stock market is at a new all-time high. You know, capital has been flowing away from America, and I'm saying, you know, be careful. If we if, if we get into a point here where we start to get a change of view as to what's happening in Ukraine, at the very least, we could see a reversal of the market, the positioning where they've been taking taking risk, and if all of a sudden they have to backpedal, we could have a dramatic change. Yeah, I think it's also important, uh, you know, within the context. For me, I walked away with saying we can't overlook the geopolitical risk. How all bets are off. For example, if somebody uses, an, well, somebody, if Russia uses even a small scale um, uh, nuclear weapon. You know, all bets are off if that's the case. Uh, just saying that's got to be part of the overlay because I'm not sure how closely people follow. I'm not sure if we're getting correct information. For example, again, Martin Armstrong said he's been told from insiders that the casualties in Ukraine are much higher than they're being reported, you know, and the challenge is just huge at that case. And that's what, that's what he's saying that we have uh, that geopolitical risk. And all I'm taking away is just to remember, not get sort of over the top bullish here because that could jump out of nowhere. Mike, I often talk about positioning and let me give you an example. In the end of September last year, you had the British pound at a 37-year low, the euro at a 20-year low, the Japanese yen a couple of weeks later at a 32-year low. So, you know, particularly with the euro, they were looking ahead in the summer at perhaps an existential freeze-to-death-in-the-dark winter in continental Europe. Okay, so let's say the euro got way too far oversold at that point. The dollar was too bullish. Now I think we've reversed, and the capital has swung the other way. We've had the euro really run up here about 12% against the U.S. dollar. Other currencies up against the U.S. dollar as well. So when I look at positioning, if I can find a market that's kind of heavily weighted one way, I can say, well, you know, I can make some, some low-risk bets that the market will go the other way. And chances are I'm probably wrong. But if I'm right, the risk-reward makes that kind of trading really worthwhile. Yeah, isn't that great? We chat here and then people get a takeaway of, I better be careful, I better watch out, and I better watch everything every day. You know, I mean, I'm just, but that's the environment. You know, I alluded to this earlier in the show. You know, Stanley Druckenmiller said, 45 years around, he's never seen a market like that. It's harder to forecast six months out. You know, and I'm just saying, that's, that's the impression because going back to the original thing you said, we're all watching what the monetary policy is, what the Fed's going to decide, what government, but who the heck knows what Putin's going to decide? Who the heck knows what Xi Jinping's going to decide? You know, I mean, these are all variables. And, and I think it's a false confidence to think we know exactly what's going to transpire. Well, I, I certainly never pretend that I know what's going to transpire, but I do look at things and to make it very current, 
where are we at? Uh, we're about September, pardon me, <laughs> February the 10th or something. <laughs> uh, but I think we had a key turn date across markets on the 2nd of February. That's last, Thursday of last week, the day I was traveling to go to the conference that I couldn't be involved in front of my machine. We had, And what really happened that day, the, the market realized, oh my gosh, short-term rates are going higher than what we'd figured. The U.S. dollar made a bottom, the bond market uh, yields made a bottom and started to go higher, and the stock market made a high. I keep pointing out, I, I like, pardon me, I should say, I keep talking about key turn dates because if a number of major markets all reverse direction on the same day, that says to me something important just happened. Well, we'll keep an eye on it, and there's so much to do, and that's why I invite people to go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. Uh, .ca. Important to do that. And by the way, you can still catch, as we've been saying during the show, go to worldoutlessconference.com. You can still get a hold of all of the speeches there online. So there's so much, there's so much food for thought uh, involved with it. Vic, thanks for taking the time. Hey, Mike, always a pleasure. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. You know, I've been reading about this for a couple of years, and to be perfectly candid at first, I actually didn't believe it when I first read it. And now I can't believe that Canada has not raised a big fuss over the fact that the government of New York, New York City, hands out free bus tickets to immigrants that takes them to the infamous Roxham Road border crossing in Quebec, whereupon they cross, you know, a fleet of taxis takes them and they cross. I mean, this is part of the fallout, by the way, and we talked about this a few months ago from the huge problem they have at the Mexican border for the U.S. and states like Texas and Arizona. Remember this? They started sending busloads of illegal immigrants to so-called sanctuary cities, including New York. Well, now New York is passing them on to Canada, and you don't hear a peep from the government. I mean, the BS coming out of the New York's mayor office is, well, just nothing short of thick. They say that the migrants didn't want to stay in New York City, so they're helping them go to Plattsburgh, New York. That's the closest U.S. city to the Canadian border and Roxham Road. Really? Do they want us to believe that people living in Guatemala or maybe Mexico in general or Venezuela sat home thinking, gee, Plattsford sounds wonderful. Let's go there. And when they finally arrive, they say, heck, let's keep going to Canada and we'll grab a cab to the border. You know, in December, 4,689 people crossed into Canada legally on that border for an average of about 151 per day. But you know what? In 2022, there were over 39,000 doing that. And sadly, it seems that many of the migrants aren't even aware that crossing the border like that, well, it's illegal. They're going to get arrested. And the determination as to whether they're actual refugees or, I mean, I'm not knocking them for wanting a better economic life, but they don't qualify then. The government says that only about a half of their claims are accepted. The federal government has to, but won't, claim at least partial responsibility, though, given the prime minister's infamous and misleading declaration, in quotes, to those fleeing, fleeing persecutions, terror and war, Canadians will welcome you, regardless of your faith. Diversity is our strength. Hashtag welcome to Canada. Well, the message was repeated literally, or retreated millions of times. It's created this misleading impression about Canada as a sanctuary for all the world's displaced. And sadly, it was simply political theater designed to, you know, show up Donald Trump and his, you know, border wall stuff. And as we're seeing in so many other areas, keep this in mind, virtue signaling comes at a cost. Canada's needs and is welcoming about 1.5 million immigrants through the official channels. We need them over three years. 
But that doesn't mean we've committed the resources to help the newcomers succeed in their new home, let alone those crossing illegally. I mean, polls tell us that the vast majority of Canadians support immigration. But you know what? That number drops dramatically when it comes to uh, migrants crossing the border illegally. And you know what? The fact that New York City is actually paying for illegal migrants to come to the Canadian border without barely a boo from the federal government, I think it just illustrates how absurd things have become. That's all we have this week for you. Hey, but before we go, I want you to note this, that of course... uh, Armstrong Economics, Martin Armstrong has written a specific report for Canada only, and they have a 50% discount this week for Canadians, well, for people signing up through our website. So go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, mikesmoneytalks.ca, there's a 50% discount to get Marty Armstrong's take on Canada, a special Canadian report. And uh, this is a great time of year because we're doing all that. You can still get, of course, as I said, the conference video on worldoutlookconference.com. Hey, and it's not, well, there's not too late. March 4th, the Polar Plunge. I'm looking for people to actually join Aussie and I in the plunge. Oh, I'm so excited about it. So it's not too late to do all of that. Something to think about this weekend. And I appreciate you listening very much. This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet.